Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. An episode today that I've been looking forward to for a while. One of these shows that comes out of my own personal interest, and that is aviation. Anybody who has ever read our year in review 100 years later that I do with my friend Aaron Boys knows that I, to his great chagrin, force aviation topics on the list every single year. I am just endlessly fascinated with aviation, both from the business side of it to the mechanical engineering, the physics of it all. It's remarkable to me that as human beings, we have the capability to go up into the sky in metal tubes and it works. It's incredible to me. So when this book came across my desk, I was very interested and I consumed it very, very quickly. It's called Flying to Extremes, Memories of a Bush Pilot by Dominique Prinet. He was a bush pilot, as the title would indicate, in the late 1960s into the early 1970s. He flew out of a base in Yellowknife to some smaller communities throughout the north. And the book is a collection of his stories from that time. And what comes across in the book, and you get a sense of it in the discussion that I had with Dominique, is how great of a storyteller he is and how crazy this job was, especially at that time where, yes, aviation was safe, relatively speaking, but not nearly as reliable as it is today. The machinery was more prone to breaking down in those communities you have fewer resources available to you the schedule is just insane when you think about it up in the north uh, as he corrects me that you don't really think of your schedule in terms of days in the summer in the north you just keep going and going and going because you have the sunlight available to you when you're flying by sight you don't have the instruments up there that they have at uh, airports today so it, it's just a, an incredible series of stories. And there's two things that really come through. First, his clear love of the North and the people. There's a love in his voice for the people when he talks about them and and the experiences that he was able to have with the communities in the North. And then the other thing that comes across is indeed how dangerous this job was. The book is full of close call stories. And he tells a couple of them on the show here. But you're flying by sight in machines that sometimes might not work the way you want them to in weather that can be very unpredictable up in the north. And he certainly had some close calls over the course of his career. And the book for anyone who's interested in aviation, who's interested in the north or who just is is interested in good storytelling, this is real life storytelling. It's his life. Some of the stories he even notes in the discussion kind of come across as unbelievable, but they're all based on his experiences. And uh, I, I very much enjoyed the book and enjoyed talking to Dominique. So let's get right into that chat, talking about flying to extremes with author Dominique Prinet. All right. And Dominique Prinet joins me now from Vancouver. Dominique, how are you doing today? Fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, very excited to have you on the show to talk about flying to extremes, which profiles your experience flying in the north. 
So let's get right into it and talk about your experience flying. When did you start to fly and what prompted you to get interested in aviation? It's an interest I have, not professionally, more personally. Uh, so I'm always intrigued as to what fascinates other people about aviation and what prompted you to get into this line of work. It probably started when I was very young. When I was five years old, we were living or, or sitting, hiding in the old 12th century family castle at the east of France, while the front was moving from Normandy through Paris and eventually to the east of France. So the front was, the battle was, was there on the castle between the Germans and the Americans for, for several days. And I was five years old and hiding with the rest of the population in the basement of the village. And when the front moved about a kilometer further uh, beyond the, the hill, I could come out and I watched uh, dogfights between the, the, uh, either the Americans or the British and the German uh, Focke-Wulf uh, fighters. And I was absolutely thrilled. And so when I was 16 years old, before I could drive a car, I started flying gliders and took on with a, uh, continued with a private pilot's license and got my uh, commercial and, and instructor licenses in Canada. So that was great because when I moved to Canada, I was ready to fly and I had quite a bit of experience. So it was fairly easy for me to get the Canadian equivalences with the support of the good people in Transport Canada. And I was absolutely amazed because in France, whenever I wanted to do something, I was told why it couldn't be done. And I come to Canada and here is a guy, civil servants, until, instead of telling me you can't fly in Canada, he told me, and I remember very clearly, he said, look, I don't know how to do it, but we'll find a way. And he discussed it with his colleagues and he came back with ways to get the Canadian equivalences uh, fairly easily. And he supported me. And, and after a few weeks, he invited me to his home to, to share supper with, with him and his family. I mean, this is a, a civil servant who, who, who's not only telling me it's possible, but he's actually helping me and encouraging me to do whatever I'm trying to do. I've never seen that. So I, I decided that was the place for me, and I never looked back. So I was fabulous. So you're in Canada. You are legally allowed to fly. And now this is a, a time post-war. We're, we're in this period where civil aviation is growing, passenger aviation, that business is growing. But what was your initial thrust into being a pilot? And what eventually took you to the north? It, uh, it happened by accident. I came in because I was so discouraged, so, so depressed. I was, I, was, I was broken because I hadn't entered into the top schools in France where my family expected me to, to join. I come from very old traditional families in, in France on both sides. So I felt like the family idiot, didn't know what to do, did a, a number of crazy things for a while and then eventually backed up and went to Canada to hide in the woods. I was so embarrassed and so ashamed. So I, I hid in the woods to become a logger, but the logging camps were closed and I only had $200 in my pocket and didn't know anybody. So I had to do something. And the only thing I knew how to do 
uh, lacking a, a formal uh, university diploma at the time, is, it was to fly airplanes. So I, I knocked on doors at, around the airport, not knowing the difference between Air Canada, Pacific Western Airlines, and the two-bit local operator. And I ran into a fellow who said, yeah, sure, uh, go up to... So on the spot, they took me on an airplane, I took an engine up to Powell River, and the boss met me and said, well, we're going to try you. So he asked one of his pilots to take me on a scheduled flight, which I was supposed to do on a Cessna 172 with two passengers in the back. And we flew together and then came back. And after that, they said, well, uh, you seem to know how to fly. So why don't you do the next guy flight? So they sent me to Victoria and back. And then the next flight, and at the end of the day, they said, well, why not you overnight in a little shack at the end of the runway, which we, we own. So I did that. And the next day, they put me on more scheduled flights. And on the third day, I came back, and they put me on more scheduled flights. So I said, well, how long do you think the testing is going to continue? And they said, well, you're on, you're working, you're working for us. I didn't know I, was, <laughs> I had been hired, and the guy didn't even know my name. <laughs> and, and I couldn't believe it. In France, when you want to do something, you've got to not only show all your papers and certificates and diplomas, but you've got to explain who you are, what schools you attended, give your background, and more importantly, what was your father doing and what your grandfather doing. And if they're satisfied with the background of the family more than by your, your ability, then they hire you. I got a job to, to sell books in a wholesale uh, bookstore just before coming to Canada. And the guy asked me my name. And then he asked me, are you related to the painter? There's a, a pre-night painter who is relatively known. He's got some paintings all over the world, 18 museums, I think. And I said, yes. Well, so I was hired, not because of my talent. I never sold a book before but because of my background and who my grandfather was, or great uncle. So over there, the guy didn't know my name, didn't see my license, uh, trusted me and, and, and hired me on the spot. And this approach to me was absolutely amazing. I get help from the civil servants and I get hired, not because of my father or my grandfather, but because of my own ability. And I just loved that, that spirit. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And I said, that's my country. That's what I've been looking for for all my life. And I've found it. So that, that's the beginning of a new life. And it was up and forward uh, from then on. It was a terrific time. So I started flying up and down the coast for, for, Paul, for uh, Airbnb. No, not Airbnb. It was called Airwest Airlines at the time. It became part of Airbnb later on. Now, I just want to get back to something you said earlier about your intelligence or your perceived intelligence with your family that maybe you didn't do as well in your education as, as they would have expected. What's remarkable to me is an airplane, any aircraft has hundreds of moving parts. You have to know so much about the science behind how planes fly, how they stay in the air. You have to be pretty adept at the mechanical side of things, probably a little bit on the engineering side too. So how would you come to terms 
or reconcile that sense that you had that you hadn't lived up to whatever your family's expectations were with the clear, to me, the clear intelligent requirements to be able to pilot any sort of aircraft. That's an interesting point. My family consists of academics. And 500 years ago, the first prene on my father's side was, was a notary public. And there have been judges and, and lawyers ever since. And the same thing on my, my mother's side. There are doctors and have been pharmacists for hundreds of years before that. So they're all intellectual. And the goal in those types of family is to come out from the, the best schools there are. Well, it's very hard to get in. And the reason why they're so exclusive is that hardly anybody can get in. So I didn't get in. <laughs> didn't get in, and and that was a very miserable disappointment for me, and and, and I thought for my family too, because a lot of my cousins, they're all my cousins and uncles, they're all or doctors. My my grand great grandfather was the president of the medical association of France. Cousin of my mother is a Nobel Prize in biology. Uh, my uncle is a famous painter another uncle was the judge of the panama canal a fiasco when they were digging the canal i have a, a great great grandfather who was a general also i mean those are the kind of my my father was a chief curator in the national library so they're all intellectual and it doesn't matter what talent you have with your fingers <laughs> what you can build uh, it's not the same as the intellectual capacity that they expect from the members of the family. So I thought it was a letdown. But would you agree with me that there is a, a very high level of, of intelligence and knowledge needed to be able to successfully be a pilot? Yes, there should be. It's, it's becoming simpler and simpler and more mechanical. And if you want to be a good pilot, you have to have the background in physics and in math and in aerodynamics that is required to to conduct a safe operation. Uh, A lot of pilots get away uh, without this background and uh, they they run into problems. I was saved many times because of the intense training that I had in highly specialized flying schools run by the government in France. Uh, It was a two weeks high intensive uh, training, including flying acrobatics uh, and, and extreme extreme flying, including I was training for competitive acrobatics. You really have to understand the mechanics of flying and what you're doing. So there was a lot of background which which saved me because pilots who don't have this background uh, don't understand what's happening, and then the airplane stalls on the inner wing on a turn, for instance. Or, picks up ice or yeah so you you really need you should have a lot of background yeah and, and anyone who's who wonders just who's listening to this you can just google like a pre-takeoff checklist even one today where there are a lot more computers the amount of of calculations that need to be done and things like weight and balance and all that kind of stuff that that goes into any sort of pre-flight check there's there is there's a lot of math involved and yeah you do have to know the science if you're in the air and 
you run out of fuel or something, you have to know what the calculations are going to be so you can make a safe landing. And that comes up a few times in the book, close calls with uh, fuel and uh, some emergency landings and, and landings and locations that you probably would have preferred not to land in. So, uh, but before we get into the, some of the specific stories there, what would a typical day be for you flying into the North? And would would it ever get boring? Because in reading the book and, and reading the parts of the book that I was, I was lucky enough to go through, it sounds like a job where it'd be kind of impossible to get bored because every day is a little different. You're going into different situations. The weather, of course, is always changing. But for you doing it every day, did it ever feel or ever get monotonous? Was that possible for you? Absolutely not. It was either uh, stressful and sometimes sheer panic, or it was enjoyment and, and blissfulness in front of beautiful countryside. And I was sitting up in the air looking at the Northwest Territories and the tundra and the lakes or the mountains in the distance uh, in total amazement by the beauty of nature. So I was either stressed to the limit or in a state of ex ecstasy. And I'd like to correct the word that you use. You keep talking about days. Remember that it's, it's flying around the clock during the mm -hmm. summer. There is no such thing as a, as a day. You right. don't know whether it's 2 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's around the clock, and you, you fly for days without coming back to the base, refueling from fuel drums along the Arctic coast or on the Arctic islands or somewhere in the tundra. Pilots often make their own fuel cache. Whenever they have spare fuel, they drop it there in case of an emergency. So you, you sleep 10 or 15 minutes at a time whenever the weather is clear. And I used to do that all the time. Whenever I could, I just would pass on the, the wheel to whoever's happening to sit on the right-hand side and explain to them that drive it like a truck, you turn left and right, to go up and down, you, you pull or you push and keep going in the same direction. I pointed at the direction of the sun because I don't want the guys to go around in circles for an hour while I'm sleeping. <laughs> so keep the direction from the sun and keep going. And if something goes wrong, then you wake me up. And, and I could sleep for 20 minutes like that. And, uh, and and usually once I told him to go by the sun, they'd keep it in the right direction. So it was relatively safe. And I would eat whatever I could from sharing meals with passengers or eating whatever food I could pick up here and there. Sometimes I, on occasion I carried the cargo, I couldn't get through, landed. So I overnighted uh, in the bush, uh, slept in the airplane and so for food, I took some of the food that I was carrying. I was carrying steaks. So I had a steak for supper in, in the bush. It was very nice. Most of the time I eat raw uh, caribou meat or frozen meat or, or, or fish, raw raw fish, often char, uh, whatever I could. And I could sleep. I would sleep whenever I had a few hours of, of sleeping. I would sleep and then keep on going the next day. One passenger asked me one day, well, when do you sleep? I said, well, you sleep in the winter. You get six months, six months to sleep. <laughs> but what, you know, it gets very hard because on some day, some occasion, one day, it's one of the stories I tell. I, I was uh, 
going around the clock and never stopped. And at the end, I think it was the, the second day or the beginning of the third day, I was coming into land and it getting to the point that I knew I was going to collapse on the wheel and fall asleep. I couldn't. So I, I made the radio whistle in my ears to wake me up and then I opened the door and then I, I tried to cut my leg with my, my dagger, my, my knife to stay awake. And I, I, I could see that I was going to collapse and I couldn't do it anymore. So I came in to land, leveled off, chopped off the engine and collapsed on the wheel. And I slept there. And we had arrived to the lake where we were supposed to go, but we had another two or three miles to go to the camp. And the guys in the camp saw us land and and shut off the engine. So they came with a with an outboard motor and a little boat to see what was what. And they saw me fast asleep and I couldn't be walking up. And so they dragged the, the airplane for two or three miles to the camp unloaded the airplane, the passengers got off and they let me sleep, sleep for two or three hours until I woke up and then they poured me full of, of coffee and eggs and off I went to continue flying on, on, on other flights. So that, but I, I just didn't make it to the camp. I, I just fell asleep <laughs> at the end of the lake. <laughs> it never reached, I was missing two or three miles. <laughs> Right. It's, it's, it's almost like it's a, a lifestyle of a, like a bear. You get the it's whole winter off to yeah. sleep, right? You just. Yeah, I, I had a colleague one day, he came in with an otter and, and at the dock in Yellowknife and, and he arrived and docked and the passengers came off, but he never got on, got off the airplane. So I went to have a look and, and see what was happening to him. And he was fast asleep. He made it to the dock and then collapsed on the wheel and fast asleep on the, right at the dock he couldn't make it to the office i had another colleague one day whom i saw he arrived from from days of flying got to the office he got to the door and then he leaned on the frame of the door standing up and fell asleep standing up and so the passengers were getting in and out of the office passing him carefully so as not to wake him up he was standing up on the side of the door leaning against the post <laughs> it didn't make it right to the couch or to, to the chair in the office right. so it, it was a bit crazy i mean it, sometimes it was getting dangerous but but at the time there were no limits you know there's no sure. such thing as an eight hour day because you get paid by the mile so in in three months of, of summer i had to work hard enough to earn enough to pay for university and be away for a year, fly to Montreal or, or to, to Vancouver to university, and then buy my, pay my fees at university and live a room and board for a year. All this in three months of, of savings. So it means a lot of work. How would you, from your experience, describe the North? I, I think that there is a certain romance that a lot of people in Southern Canada have but you, of course, have a very unique perspective, quite literally, uh, from where you were in the cockpit flying. But also, you got an opportunity through this to meet people who, even those of us in, in southern Canada who might get a chance to go to the north, we don't always get to go to the communities that are a little more isolated, a little further away from the main centers uh, in the north. Like, How would you describe it? And is there a, the, the idea, the romance that I think a lot of people have 
of the North. How true is that to you? And, and what is your just recollection of the region and the people? I had an, an absolute fascination for the North at the time, but it was different from what it is now. It was just in the late 60s and early 70s, the North was opening up. And in fact, I was using maps which had blank spots on them. And the maps were two colors, white for ground and blue for lakes, rivers, and the ocean. No contour lines and very rare altitudes. And I remember on one map, close to the mouth of the Mackenzie River, there was a square box saying, be careful, mountains have been reported in this area up to, I think it was a thousand feet or two thousand feet. So the mountains are not shown on the map. And uh, so it was all very primitive. So I had a feeling of helping in discovering the North. And uh, at the same time, there was a considerable interest in the mineral potential of the North and the oil and gas potential. So there were companies uh, drilling for uh, drilling in the Arctic islands, for instance, in absolutely awful conditions in winter. That was my the worst flight I ever did. That's a, that's a story in itself. And a lot of prospectors, plus all the trappers, plus all the emergencies, the flights, the, the women. I could never understand why women have their babies in January and February in snowstorms. Why not in June and July when it's pleasant to fly? So you had a lot of, of emergency. So I really had the feeling that I was participating in the opening of the North and bringing supplies to the, to the people. In a small community, you mentioned the small isolated communities, people would come in and, and very shyly ask me if I could bring, next time I was around, if I could bring uh, some some sewing thread or some needles or, or some some glue or some piece of cloth or something because they have nothing over there. There is a little uh, co-op, the Hudson Bay store or something like that, and it often run out runs out. So, and and when I come back three or four months later or six months later, they would come and look at me and smile and wondering if I had brought whatever they had requested six months, six months <laughs> earlier. So, and, and those people were absolutely amazing. The, the very friendly people. I remember in, in, in copper mine on the Arctic coast one day, it was in winter, I arrived and I had some mitts, but they were rather miserable. And then old woman look at me and without saying anything, she, she, she went home and the next morning she came in also very shy and very smiling. And she brought me a pair of caribou mitts. She spent the night building caribou mitts uh, with, uh, with a duffel inside and fur on the outside on a, by the wrist. And it was a gift because she felt sorry for me. So of course I paid her, but Imagine those people who say, well, this young fellow has a problem and let's, let's help him. I, even a, a, a white woman in, was walking in yellow, in yellow nights downtown and I had a sleeping bag with me and it was losing its feathers because it was in the winter. I had gone 
with another and some people and we had to spend several hours on uh, outside and in, in the cold because I forget what they were doing anyhow. So we come out back at the end of the day, but to keep the battery relatively warm and be able to start again uh, at the end of the day, I had wrapped my sleeping bag over it. And of course the acid of the battery chewed it up. So I end up covered in feathers. And so at the end of the day, I come back home with my sleeping bag. I don't know what to do because it's full of holes and half the feathers are gone. So a lady looks at me and she said, oh, your bag needs mended, mending. I'll, I'll do that for you. And she borrows the bag. And during the day, she, she put it back together and she gave it to me. I, I didn't know who she was. But that's the kind of people you meet. And oh, it, it's absolutely amazing. And the, the natives people, native people are, are just quite extraordinary too. I spent some time in your life with a, a, a First Nation trapper. Uh, George Blondin, and he he took me duck hunting, and so we spent the day navigating through the little channels and up rivers and duck hunting. You know, it's fascinating. Another occasion, he took me moose hunting during the winter. So we drove with my old beat-up car uh, out of Yellowknife into the bush, and jumped on our snowshoes and started running through the bush for for two days, and of course. Being a white man from the city, I, after about an hour, I stumbled on my snow, snowshoes and stepped on a rock and broke my snowshoes. I was hopping around with a broken snowshoe and feeling embarrassed while he was just running around like there were no trees. And at the end of the day, he decided to spend the night. And he was following the moose by looking at little branches, left and right and center, little twigs which had been cut off. Not, you couldn't see the tracks because uh, either there was no snow or it had snowed over the tracks, I forget, or both. So you couldn't follow the tracks, but he, he looked at the bush and said, oh, see, the little branch has been taken off and this one has been cleaned by the, by the moose. So he followed the moose. And at the end of the first day, he decided to uh, spend the night there. So he lit the fire along a log and put some branches on the snow. And in two minutes, he was in his sleeping bag and sleeping. Well, it took me half an hour to get organized and with my snowshoes and figure out how to set it up. And the next day we continued. And at the end of the second day, we found a moose. Two days of running through the bush. So it was true. It was the little branches cut off by the moose that he was following. And we found the moose. And it ran away in the bush. But... So it was just there, we caught up with it. By then it was time to go home because it was the end of the second day. So we continue walking. And at the end of the second day, we ended up back out of the bush on the gravel road where I had left the, left the car. And I, I couldn't believe it. We'd been going around in circles through the bush. He'd never been there before. I, how he found it, it's overcast. You can't even tell your way by the sun. So two days in the bush, and after two days of walking, maybe 20 kilometers of walking in zigzag through the bush following the track, he got us back exactly. We came out of the bush right by the car from another direction from where we had started. So I asked him, well, how, how do you do that? Oh, he said, I, I recognize the trees. And I had patches of trees here and there. And I can't tell a tree from another, but he, he can see all the difference. The, the, those guys are amazing. And... Uh, 
I, I had a, a friend, an Inuit guy on the Arctic coast, Joe Milukchuk, a delightful fellow. And it was fun because one day he came in to help me get some fuel. I had the fuel cache in, in, on the Arctic coast. So he takes me off and I had landed on skis in the dark and about a kilometer away behind some hills uh, on the tundra. So he offered to take me with, with his kidoo and a dog, uh, his sleigh and take me some, some barrels. So we go over the tundra in the dark, we go up a hill, and on the either side of this hill, there was a dog team, another Inuit coming in with his dog team on the other side. So there was a collision, uh, modern society against traditional society, collision between the skidoo and, and the sleigh and the dog. So we were all tangled up and the dogs were all tangled up and it took half an hour to untangle them. In the meantime, the sleigh had rolled into the snow. The barrels came out, rolled down the hill. There was a collision in the middle of the tundra at night between a skidoo and a dog team. And it was all laughing and joking. And so we refueled the airplane this way. But those, those people are amazing because of their uh, tenacity, the, the way they managed to survive, their kindness. They feel at peace. They've been living with nature and protecting and, and protect, being careful not to destroy the wildlife and the caribou and not overfish and living in close contact with, with nature for thousands of years. And they're very resilient, very kind, very peaceful, very quiet, very welcoming. And, and those, those are the kind of people we should use as, as examples rather than live the hectic way we do and always complaining about everything. I've never heard an in Inuit complaining about anything or mad at anything. Sometimes they get mad at their dogs, but they're all, they always adapt. They always think whatever it is, it, it, it's funny. And it, it takes a lot of courage to do that. It's interesting too. You think of how important aviation, what you did was as a, a lifeline of sorts or just connecting to those communities and, and the resources that were brought in. But at the same time, the book makes very clear that this was not an easy job and you've made reference to this uh, so far in the discussion. And it strikes me that the fact that you're here to talk to me today is a small miracle uh, given some of the stories that are included in the book. So just how dangerous was this job? And like, I read this book and I think you're a really lucky person yes. uh, that you were able to to survive really the, this particular job and how dangerous it was. But can you give a bit of an insight just into how dangerous it was and how nervous were you or, or were you able to become almost numb to that danger over time because it was just an ever-present part of the job? Well, I, I was, I was, I was stressed out uh, quite often, and in fact, that was it was very hard on the nervous system. But I was lucky that my most lucky experience was when coming back with an order full of American fishermen along the Arctic coast, and we flew. Uh, the, the weather turned bad while we were fishing for a day or two. And I had about, I don't know, four or five, five hours of flying to do along the coast to get back to Great Bear Lake and to the lodge. 
And so we flew under the clouds for a while, got so bad that I ended up flying in the clouds, climbing over so as not to pick up any, any freezing drizzle. And uh, eventually the clouds got thicker. We got into the clouds, I picked up ice. And even with full throttle uh, and the flaps and takeoff position, we couldn't maintain altitude. So we, we fell down, down for 20 or 25 minutes. We fell down losing altitude. And I, I felt sorry. I looked back and felt sorry for those people. You know, we're going to hit the ground. I know that bad weather was right down to the ground. And so we'd hit the ground without even seeing it at cruising speed or faster than cruising speed because of all the ice built that built up. And when we eventually hit the ground in zero visibility, we hit the ground a hell of a speed, but on water and we were on pontoons. So there's lots of water in the Arctic, but lakes and tundra and rocks, but what we hit happened to be water. And it wasn't my choice, it's just where the airplane fell down. So I throttled back immediately to stop the airplane because I didn't know how wide the lake or river was. I had no idea where we were. And so as soon as I slowed down the airplane, it started sinking because it was so full of ice. There was ice, especially on the on the on the tail section. So it started rolling backwards to sink backwards. So I applied more power. And because I couldn't see anything. Uh, through the windshield, which was covered with us, or even through the window because of the fog. I asked my passenger if he could see something on his side, and he said, yeah, I could see the land. So we followed the land under his direction. I told him, let me know if there's a place where I can park the airplane, a little beach or something. And after a while, he said, yeah, yeah here's the beach. So I turned 90 degrees, and sure enough, sticking my head out, I could see a little beach. So I rammed the airplane on the beach and slowed down the engine. And then after a few minutes, a lady came from behind and said, oh, have we arrived at the lodge? I said, no, ma'am. Uh, we uh, The weather is so bad, I thought we'd, we'd stop for a while and wait for it to clear up. She said, oh, good. She says, I was hoping to stretch my legs. And I told her, well, don't stretch your legs too far because it's so foggy and so thick that even the seagulls are walking. Then I noticed my passenger on the right hand side and he was watching something intense. I said, what are you looking at? I thought it was maybe some caribou's passing by. And said, well, I'm looking at the tents. I said, what tent? So I looked out and sure enough, there are two tents just up from the little beach. And I knew what those tents meant. It meant because there are two tents like this every 500 kilometers or every 1,000 kilometers throughout the tundra and in the Arctic Islands. Those are researchers. There's typically a PhD professor and a PhD student who is doing his thesis on the fauna or the flora or the rocks or whatever it is they're looking at. And so and that's two in one tent. And then the other tent, which is a, a cookhouse, there is the cook. So you've got three men typically in those camps. And so, of course, it, it was so foggy that they were all inside the tent. So I looked for it, and sure enough, because of the engine still running, I let, was letting it cool down. So a couple of heads, bearded guys coming out. And I, so I told the lady who wanted to go, oh, yeah, so we, we're stopping here uh, for a cup of coffee, I said, you know, before it clears up, because I knew we'd get coffee from the tent. And so the person couldn't get in the back because the, the back was 
very close to the water and was full of ice and they couldn't let them off the slippery pontoon at the back. So they all crawled up through the cockpit, uh, over the pilot seat and down on the ladder or to the top of the pontoon and then slid down the pontoon and then jumped on the ground. And the nose was two or three feet off the, off the beach. <laughs> And uh, and we spent something like twelve or fourteen hours in the in the cookout, and nobody realized anything. They thought it was normal. You know, we come here for a cup of coffee on the way. It's part of the program. Well, they like this. And so they chit chat and and talk fishing, and they were thrilled. It was all very exciting. And in the meantime, I was watching the airplane until the ice melted, and then day. Uh, well, it was day all the time. When it was clear, then we took off because the, the ceiling had gone up by about 50 meters. It was very close to the ground, but it's absolutely flat terrain. So all we need is 50 meters and unlimited visibility. So we came back and arrived at the lodge. And I, I never told anybody the story because I didn't want to scare them off. <laughs> but uh, that was, and that was purely luck. It was totally luck. We ended up on the lake. And we ended up on the one lake within a radius of uh, three or four hundred miles, where there were two people or three people living in two tents, and we had biscuits. And so all my passengers gobbled up all their supplies. Of course, they thought it was perfectly normal. And so the next day, I I came back to those people and and brought them some replenishment, some 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 food and supplies. And I told the, the lodge manager that we should bring them a bottle of whiskey to, uh, yeah. <laughs> to pay for our, our stay. And that was so that was an example of pure pure luck. It just totally and, and I to this day I have a hard time believing the story because it it's totally baffling. But other flights were successful uh, because of my background and experience and that so that was for instance the trip i did to the 80s parallel north in february of all times of the year in the dark in 50 below it was a week up there and that was absolutely atrocious because there's no radio beacon to navigate you can't fly with a gyro compass because it precesses you can't fly with a magnetic compass uh, either because of course it doesn't work you can't read the map because everything is flat and frozen we flew over the over uh, some islands and uh, shoreline of islands over islands on the other side without ever knowing that we were flying over an island and that's how you navigate by trying to find an island recognize it from another and so we came back to find our our way it, I'd been sick for a, a week before this flight, and, and I was really feeling awful during the flight. It was very long. One day, we spent 11 hours flying without shutting the engine, refueling in the tundra of 45 gun and drums with the hand pump with the engine running. Can't stop the engine because the battery is frozen. So, uh, and landing on the ice, very rough ice, and on the tundra on on ridges, rock ridges, was, was just very scary. And uh, uh, that's that's the most extreme flight I had to do. And I used all the experience I had gained 
in my earlier life, flying acrobatics in particular and pushing airplanes right to the limit. Uh, and it worked out, but uh, never again. That was, <laughs> it was too hard. So it's either luck, yeah. or in some cases it's talent. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and that certainly comes across in the book that there's cases of luck and a lot of talent and a lot of knowledge of both aviation and the region that got you through. And the stories in there are absolutely incredible. I very much enjoyed reading it. So again, the book is Flying to Extremes. Dominique, if people want to learn more about the book, pick up the book or, or learn more about you, uh, what's the best way for them to do it? Or you can pick up the book. It's available at Amazon or you can buy it from directly and that might be the best place from the publisher hancock house in vancouver uh, or if you live up north from the bookseller which is the bookstore in yellowknife and in yellowknife alone they've sold about 300 copies of, of that book because wow. it means a lot to people who live there and normally you should get it in any bookstore but you have to order it they don't carry it and uh, certainly, yeah, if you're anywhere across the country, if you go to your local store, ask for it. They will, I'm sure, pick it up for you. So again, the book, Flying to Extremes, Dominique Pekinet. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're quite welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So there you have it. My discussion with Dominique Pekinet, and I thank him for joining me today. Again, the book is Flying to Extremes, Memories of a Bush Pilot. Thank our friends over at Hancock House Publishers for helping to set this one up. As I said off the top, very much enjoyed this book, very much enjoyed that conversation. So I hope you did as well as that will do it for this week on the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing here on the History Slam. Do head on over, of course, to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are there under the podcast tab, plus all of the great written content that we have on the site. If you haven't checked it out yet, I will recommend once again, Laura Matacora, her article on freedom in the context of the ongoing protests across the country. As I said last week, I live here in Ottawa. I'm downtown, but not core downtown. So I'm slightly removed from the center of everything going on. And it's it's been interesting to me to read as widely as I can about not only what's going on, but about some of the broader ideas at play in the entire situation. It's quite fascinating. So I would encourage everybody certainly to check out that article over there on Active History, plus some other cool stuff. There's always fun stuff on the website. You just scroll through, see what's there. You uh, will certainly find something, I'm sure, that is of interest to you. I'm excited a lot on the site. I'll just go into the search box a lot and type in a word and see what comes up because the site's been around for 13 years. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, I have not read before on the site. So it's always a good time. So hacktivehistory.ca. If you want to keep up with what i got going on, you can follow along on Twitter at the Sean Graham, and you can let me know what you want to hear on the show, historyslam at gmail.com. So thanks again, everybody, for listening. It is always appreciated. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.